Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Compared to What podcast. This week, a twist on things. Former guest Matt Pearson sits down with music business legend Tommy LaPuma. And then I stop doing an intro like an NPR intro. And then I just kind of talk like my regular self and tell you that Matt and Tommy sat down and had an incredible conversation. Um, to the point where the actual conversation itself ran over three hours. Um, Matt did some editing. Uh, I did some further editing. And I've turned this into uh, part one of a two-part uh, episode. So we really hope you enjoy this. Please check the website, www.comparedtowhatpodcast.com, for a full description of Tommy LaPuma. But also just please listen to this episode. Even in part one, you get a real sense of, of, of the cat that Tommy is. And we really hope you enjoy it. And we thank Matt for taking the time to sit down with Tommy. But honestly, it sounds like they just had such a great time that <laughs> I'm glad that we set up the situation where the two of them could just hang. Uh, and I'm glad they recorded it. It's a really great episode. Well, excuse me. It's a really great two episodes. So without further ado, a new episode of the Compared to What podcast is coming at you. So, so tell me about when you first came up in Cleveland. I know you were born in Cleveland, you were raised in Cleveland. What was it like there in a music sense, and how were you first really exposed to music and developed your passion for music? Well, as it turns out, you know, Cleveland was like a breakout market, and had been, I think, for some time. But particularly in the 50s, 60s, if you got something played in Cleveland, there was a good chance that you could spread it. I was brought up in the, uh, I was the youngest of five children, my eldest brother was 17 years older than I was, and the closest to me was I had a sister who was nine years older than I was. By the time I hit four, five, six years old, the difference, there were a few different things I could think about. One is radio, how important radio was to everyone in regard to the music they heard, the news that they got, everything came through that radio. Mm -hmm. The radio was on all the time, and of course I had two teenage sisters, mm -hmm. And my, my brothers were already uh, away, at the, you know, for the, you know, the second one. So you were, were you young? Where were I you? was, uh, well, I was born in 1936, so 40, 41, I was four yeah. or five years old. Yeah. Your sisters were older or younger? Everyone was old. I was the youngest. Oh, you're younger. Stop. Me too. I was the baby. <laughs> yeah. And so, as I said, my, my eldest brother was 17 years older than I was. The youngest, closest to me, was my sister, Teresa, who was nine years older than I. Mm -hmm. So, like, by the time I hit five, she was a teenager. So... There was a lot of music around, so I, I was hearing everybody from the Mills Brothers to Harry James, and it was just, that's why, to tell you the truth, I, I listened to the 40s on 4, on, you know, from Sirius Radio, uh -huh. because it brings back a lot of memories, you know, things that I, I remember my, my young life to be, you know, which was all of this music. That's, and was your taste dictated by what your sisters were into and what you were exposed to in the house, yeah. or local radio? Well, it was basically what I heard in the house, around the house, until I was about nine. I came down with this illness. Mm -hmm. I got hit with a, with a uh, baseball. It was so, a bone infection? It was a, yeah, osteomyelitis. Yeah. But I was laid up for like two years. In that period, I had a little radio next to my bed. And by good fortune or just accident, I hit the R&B station. And I started hearing the Clovers and Big Maybell and Laverne Baker. So that's when I discovered as they used, they call it in those days, race, race music, yeah. race yeah. rounds. Yeah. I couldn't get over. I mean, uh, so I was sort of introduced to that, not necessarily the blues, but you know Charles Brown and Nat Cole and you know all of that, all of that stuff. What would be called rhythm blues? Well, exactly, Basically. exactly. Yeah. 
And and in fact, when I became a teenager, I found a store down in the in, you know the hood where I was able to buy some of these records. You mm-hmm. know, my dad's from Cleveland. He went to East High. East, yeah, yeah sure. So he's uh, four or five years older than you. Uh huh. Okay. He was a jazz musician and played around town and knew uh, Joe Lovano's dad. Did you know him? I played with Joe Lovano. Big T. Big T. <laughs> yeah. Big T was a barber and I was a barber. Right, right. Oh, okay. And we, we did, used to have these jam sessions. Oh, okay. He was great. He made mincemeat out of me. You know, I was a decent player, but shit, I, you know, I was in, in Joe's league. Oh, yeah. But Joe and, and uh, Jim Hall. That's how I first heard Jim Hall. Oh, okay. So when I was 13, I, was, I took piano lessons for a bit, but it's weird how, I think this is part of it too, how you gravitate to things. I'm not great at doing two things at once, you know? As much as I, look, I'm glad I took piano because not only did it give me a, a sense as to, you know, the bass clef and all that shit mm-hmm. and how to read, but I, it wasn't until I, I went to junior high at, uh, in, in an area called Warnsville Heights. Mm-hmm. We lived with my brother for a couple of years. And... There was this great music teacher there who was basically, he gigged and stuff. Mm -hmm. He was a trombone player, Mr. Newman. And he, I don't know how he spotted me or whatever. And and, and he said, uh, do you want to play something? You want to play in the band? I said, yeah, I'd love to play in the band. He said, well, pick an instrument. See, that's the other thing about those days. Mm -hmm. They had instruments. And you just pick out, you know, so (laughs) the first thing I picked out was a clarinet. And uh, I just, the minute I hit the tenor sax, I found, you know, mm-hmm. I found a pal. At that, that was, point, had you, did you listen to any tenor sax? Did you listen, did you heard jazz tenor? No, no. I, this is really interesting because I didn't get into jazz until I, I must have been, I don't know, 17, 18. Wow. And somebody played me, a, a, of all people, as you think about it, played me a George Shearing record. Mm. And I thought, God damn, well, that sounds great. And then that, you know, that was the beginning, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually... I didn't hear Charlie Parker until I was, by that was gigging and, and all that shit. But I was playing, you know, casuals. Mm-hmm. Even when I was in school, I was two years behind, which was a little bit of a drag because uh, I couldn't make it up. I wasn't that great of a student to begin with. I, I fucking hated school. Right. While I was in school, I was gigging. I was working two, three nights a week. Mm-hmm. And then what happened was I, they, they were having a concert one night and I was going to miss a gig I didn't want to miss. Because the guy got a lot of work, and I didn't want to tell him I couldn't make it. Mm-hmm. So I feigned illness, which didn't work because the guy gave me an F. Imagine getting an F in music. Oh, God. So uh, <laughs> I started gigging when I was like 16. Now, 16, you're usually in 11th grade. I was in 9th grade. Right, right. But, you know, I was getting good. I was getting, you know, I'm not sure if it was a gift or something that worked against me, which was that I had a good ear. And I, as much as I could read, I couldn't, and in those days, man, if you wanted to play, you know, the big bands and shit, you had to sight read. Mm-hmm. I was not a good sight reader. Mm-hmm. But I learned, I, start, I played with a couple of big bands. It was okay if I got the music in front and would look it through and shit, I, I could do it. But uh, just to sight read, I was never a good sight reader. Right. But I quit school when I hit 10th grade. I was 18. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, I said, this is ridiculous, you know. So all I could think of in those days were, you know, chicks, cars, and, you know, the plane, and that was it. So and chicks. I, and chicks. And so I just went, you know, my old man was a barber, so he said, hey, you're going to quit school, you're going to have to learn a trade. Uh-huh. He had put me in barber college when I was still in, in, in the, the last year of, of school. So when I got out, when I quit, I had to go 
1,200 hours at Barber College. But I was still gigging. All, I was working at least two or three nights a week. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But within a year of being out there as a professional barber, mm -hmm. and I hated it. <laughs> Absolutely hated it with a passion. And I just thought to myself, what the fuck did I do? <laughs> it was the biggest mistake in our thought I couldn't believe it. And by this time, I had, I had stopped working for my dad. I was working for another guy. and It was just, it was, it was unbelievable. Turns out that it was a friend of mine got a job at an insurance agency and it was downtown, right in the middle of what they call Playhouse Square. Mm -hmm. All of the big theaters in the 40s, I mean, that's where all the big names would come in and play right, right. and so forth. Mm -hmm. It was all the big movie theaters. And there was a barbershop for sale that was in a professional building. Doctors, lawyers, stuff mm -hmm. like that. You know, and you worked by appointment. I thought this could be great. And they were off on, on Saturdays, which was unheard of in the barber business in those days. Yeah. Little did I know that my father would grab me every Saturday and take me down to his shop to work. <laughs> so I, I thought I was going to get away with working Saturdays, and I didn't. So my father loaned me the money at interest, and I, I bought this place. Turns out that the area known as Playhouse Square, all of the radio stations were in that area. W-E-R-E, W-G-R, W-H-K, W-G-W, they were all in that general mm -hmm, mm -hmm. two to three block area. So I had a friend by the name of Johnny Moose who got in the record business, mm -hmm. and he would hang out because it was close to all of the radio stations. So he started bringing disc jockeys up. Mm -hmm. So next thing you know, I had all of the disc jockeys, not all of them, but a good portion. Mm -hmm. And then I started getting promo guys. Bob Scaff, well, Ernie Farrell was a great promotion man. He introduced me to Casey Kasem. Casey wow. Kasem was working at WJW. And I, you know, all this time I'd be cutting their hair and saying, hey, I think this is a business I'd like to get into, you know? And this, so at this point you're cutting hair full time. You're still playing a couple nights a week? I was playing. By that time I was playing three or four nights a week. Wow. I was saying, man, this is, you know, this sounds like, you know, I was a total record freak. I spent every dime I had on. Mm -hmm. By that time, of course, I was a complete bebopper. <laughs> when I was about 18, there was a, a, a guy who used to sell me reeds working at a, uh, at a music store. His name was Weasel Parker. He was a great tenor player. <laughs> and, uh, and Weasel said, hey, man, you know, I got this gig uh, it's, uh, down at this place called the Corner Tavern. You want to come down? You can you know, sit in and blow. Yeah, great. And Don King, believe it or not, when he was a numbers runner, was on 79th and Cedar. It was just a joint. And it was an organ player, you know, sitting there and blowing. And I, you know, by that time, I... I heard can can you imagine? I heard Cannonball before I heard Parker. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I went on a break, of course, in those days, to jukeboxes. That was the shit. Mm -hmm. This is what you heard. And it wasn't just your taste, but it was everybody's taste, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So I remember going, uh, I, I was still, I just sat down. The next thing I know, man, I heard this insane fucking thing that was, it was before letter A, you know? Well, it was it was just friends <laughs> where he plays that outrageous yeah, yeah, thing, yeah, yeah. and then and then it comes in. And I said, like, "The fuck is that?" Locked up woman. Of course, I became a total mm -hmm. Parker nut. Mm -hmm. So when rock and roll came in, I thought this was the biggest piece of shit I've ever heard <laughs> in my life. I thought you got to be fucking kidding, man. What are they crazy? I hated it, you know. But I still I loved rhythm and blues. By this time, Alan Freed was the Moondog. And I became close friends with Alan, not then. Not until I became a promotion man and came, went out to L.A. to right. meet Alan Freed. But at the time, I knew him as the Moondog. And he, you know, he had this great song. It was called Blues for the Red Boy. That was his uh, mm -hmm. theme. Theme song, yeah. I, had all, I was still listening to all of that stuff. But once I heard Parker, it was yeah. over. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I was that way all the way up until I got in the record business. Because... I was out plugging records, and I was, you know, you name it, from 
Brooke Benton, the bull weevil, to Papa Umau Mau and all that. I mean, this is what I was... So I, I really got into pop music. Right. And it wasn't like totally foreign to me because as a kid, even though it was a different era and different genre in a right. sense, I was always a pop music. Right. So I fell right into it. So the story didn't end up, you didn't cut down King's hair then? No, okay. no, no. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not responsible for that. But so what ended up happening was at one point, I just said, I can't deal with this barber business anymore. And I had been offered a chance to go on the road with a band. Mm -hmm. Leased my shop out for two years. I mean, we played every toilet. What kind of band? For, it was just a club band. You know, we would okay. play like uh, the Lounge in Duluth, Minnesota. It was a cover band? Cover band, Every yeah, it was a cover band, exactly. And, but we sang like the four freshmen. Oh, okay. And I sang all the falsetto parts, oh. you know. So, but we, I mean, it was four of us in a station wagon. And one minute we were in like Minot, North Dakota. And the next gig we had was in Mishawaka, Indiana. So it was like <laughs> just this constantly going back and forth across the country. Well, I did that for about a year. We ended up in Streeter, Illinois. And uh, I went to see the wrong doctor. I had gotten a uh, social disease mm -hmm. on the road, uh, and this guy really fucked me up. And I ended up in the hospital, and I just said, fuck this, I can't do this anymore. And I knew I wasn't, you know, John Coltrane, I wasn't. You know? mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I had a friend of mine, his name was Bobby Jones, he was with Woody Herman, and shit. he was a great player. He turned me on to, to uh, Coltrane. And I actually saw Coltrane in Cleveland. Mm. This was like 59, 58, 59. But I thought, fuck this, I'm gonna go back to the barber business. I came back. Couldn't get to my shop because I, you know, I still had about six, seven months before the lease was out. So uh, I took a, a job with this guy across the street. The guy figured, wait, he knows everybody around here. I lasted one day. Just like this, man. I can't do it. And I tell you, man, it's fate would have it. Within two weeks, I get a call from this guy, Jack Braytel, who was a customer and he was a promotion man, had become general manager of uh, Milt Stone's distributor. Sorry, MS Distributor. So the guy told me, he said, look, I, you know, I can give you a gig, but it ain't going to be much to, to begin with. Packing records, 50 bucks a week. And he said, look, something opens up, you know, I'll, I'll make sure you get it. So I said, I'll take it. Oh my old man thought I was out of my mind. How can you take a job? You're making 100 a week or whatever it was, I think, for $50 a week. But it was great because I got a chance. Packing records is just really a great way to start because you'd hear, you know, the promotion man would come in and say, hey, I just got... So-and-so on the radio, next thing you know, you start feeling the orders the next day. Mm -hmm. you, know, you start packing orders. And I'll never forget, like, Milt Saulstone in those days was like a myth. You never saw him. And I, was, I was in the back room about four months. About three months into the gig, this guy comes back, tanned, seersucker, sport coat, burgundy tie, burgundy to, to handkerchief. And I had no idea who it was. And he's, he's looking around, you know, he's checking his chin out, and I'm packing records. So he goes up to me, he says, how you doing? I said, yeah, okay. He said, uh... Do you have any change? I said, I don't know. Look, I'm in my pocket. I don't know. I had 50, 75 cents, whatever I had. And I put my hand out like that. He takes the money and he throws it. <laughs> he throws it against the wall, you know? <laughs> and he looked at me and said, Do you like what I did with your money? I said, No. He said, Well, I don't like what you're doing with my money. And he's pointing to, you know, like you would, you would pack orders. And use 25 boxes for, for to, to pack the orders in. Right. So what you would do is, if you only had like 15 albums, you'd, you'd put fillers, these cardboard fillers, right, right. to fill it so that you know the stuff didn't bounce around inside the box. So when you're packing them, man, you're not thinking, you know, these fillers are falling on the floor all over. Right. 
This is what he was pointing at. He says, I don't like what you're doing with my money. So it was like a real opener. I'm like, shit, this is, you know, every penny counts in this business, you know? Mm-hmm. And I picked those cardboard things up and I never, you never, you know, I never dropped another one. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and then I was meeting, I mean, I met all the, kind of George, uh, uh, George Goldner. Okay. George Goldner was like, you know, the guy who owned Gone and End and had all those doo-wop records okay. and, and also, he was a huge salsa fan, and he had he had a, a salsa label, and, and he was a character in the first uh, order. But there were all these characters who had these small record companies who would come through because we were their distributor, you know? Yeah. Just to give you an idea what these guys were like, Harry Finford was, it was around Christmas time, Harry Finford was in the back. He gave each one of us like 10 bucks or something, you know? Yeah. Merry Christmas. About five minutes later, George Lola comes back. Well, apparently, Harry came back and he asked him where he was and he's oh, taking care of the guys in the back room so George goes in the back and he goes around to all of us and he says did my guy take care of you? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I mean so there were all of these guys that I you know yeah. it was just the characters of of the the record business mm-hmm. in the 50s mm-hmm. 50s 60s mm-hmm. so uh, then he gave me the first opening for promotion. Mm-hmm. And that's when I just got, I mean, I loved it. I was out popping records one night. I did that for maybe a year, and uh, I got a good rep. And this was 1960-ish, right? 1960, yeah, 60 yeah. maybe, not quite 61, something yeah. like that. And uh, one of my customers, Bob Scaff, mm-hmm. had by that time taken a job as the national guy for Liberty Records in, in LA. Mm-hmm. So he heard that I was doing real good, and he asked me to come out to be the local guy in L.A. Mm-hmm. Well, that was the game changer. Mm-hmm. So like, local promo rep for Liberty in L.A. Right. That's when suddenly right. it was like the game changer of all times. And as a local I promo guy, then you were dealing with various formats of radio or you were specializing at all? Well, when I was uh, in, in Cleveland, I had everything. In fact, though I was supposed to be the Mercury promotion man, we took everything out. So mm-hmm. I had Verve. We had uh, uh, milestone. I mean, we had all the uh, all the fantasy. You know, we had we had all. Thomas was the biggest independent distributor. Then. Yeah, 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 huge. Yeah, and they transshipped all over the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but when I went out to, for Liberty, it was strictly Liberty. Liberty had like Gene McDaniel's, Bobby V, Timmy Euro, uh, but it was great because you know we started meeting. You know, there's a joint called Aldo's. It was a coffee shop. Everybody would come through there. I just met everybody. Sam Cook, you know, next thing you know, I'd started, you know, because Sam and, and the guy that was uh, managing him at the time, God, he was a wonderful dude. Everybody hung out because KFWB was the number one station in a major market. Yeah. And everybody came out. That's the first time I, I met Nestle and, and Ahmed. Uh. So, as I said, Aldo's Coffee Shop, everybody. Joe Smith. Joe Smith at the time. Joe was a national promotion guy for Warner right. Records. In those days, the biggest artist they had was Joni Summers. Right. So it wasn't like... Uh, he was, but he was the national guy for Warner's. Right. Sonny Bono was, uh, you know, a promotion man. Right, like right, me. right. But he had long hair. He was the only dude I knew that had, like, Beatles hair right. cut before the Beatles. We all started in that, in that spot. Right. Well, Jerry Moss. Mm-hmm. That's how I met Jerry Moss. Ah. He was the hottest indie promotion man in L.A. And he'd only been out there about a year and a half. Was Lenny around yet? Well, I didn't tell you. So this is a, so what happened was I wasn't there two weeks. Okay. Right. Tuesdays was was a, when they when they put records on a KWV. I'm walking out the parking lot and some of these 
two guys came out from the shadows, right? <laughs> One guy said, excuse me, are you the new Liberty Promotion man? I said, uh, yeah. He said, well, uh, I'm Lenny Walker, and this is my friend, Randy Newman. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they had a record, because, you know, Lenny's father was chairman of so, uh, Liberty, yeah. mm -hmm. so uh, they gave him a chance to make records and shit. So that's when I first met Lenny and Randy. Oh, wow. This is like 62. And, so you uh, were like 26 and they were 22 or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That following year, they gra they both graduated from college. Uh -huh. Lenny from USC and, and Randy from UCLA. Mm -hmm. By this time, I had started getting interested in publishing. Mm -hmm. And I made good friends with the guy that was running the publishing company. Mm -hmm. This is how I got into producing, by the way. Because I saw promotion was a one-way street. I just mm -hmm. knew you, you know? So, but publishing interested me. <clears throat> I, 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 I got it, you know? So, you felt you had a good song sense. Yeah, you know. and, and, and uh, you know, this guy was so great, Dick Glasser. He was just treating me beautifully. So at one point, they asked me to go to New York as a promotion man. And I said, well, I'll tell you what. I said, I'll go, but the first job that opens in publishing, you know, I want it. And I said, okay, you got it. Mm -hmm. So I went to New York, and now talk about it. You know, I mean, you think L.A. was something. <laughs> I mean, the first time I walked in, it was like 1962. This is like now 60, yeah, 62, yeah. 60, maybe early yeah, 63. Yeah. And the first time I walked into Winds, which was the big station in uh, WINS in, in, in uh, uh, New York, there was a place that was, it couldn't have been half the size of this room. And it was stuffed with guys. And, and Ted Fagan, who was the regional guy for Liberty at the time, he was going to introduce me to people and so mm -hmm. forth. First of all, it must have been 80 when I left L.A. and I got in, it was like 15 degrees, you know. <laughs> what did I do here, you know? So we went to Winds, and as I said, we walked in this room, and there were like 25 guys stuffed into this little corner, waiting for the disc jockey, Pete Myers was his name, to walk from the studio where he was to his office. And I said, well, what's, what's going on here? He said, well, they're all waiting for Pete. Pete Myers to get off because they, they're going to plug a record with him, mm -hmm. right? And they all had 45s, of course. That was mm -hmm. the deal. Pete walks out, and as he walks out, they see him. It was like all at once, Pete, Pete, Pete. And they're like, with their 45s in their hands like this. At one point, he stopped, and he walks over to one of the guys he knew, and he grabs a record. He goes back, and there was a turntable, and he <laughs> takes the 45, and he puts it on the turntable. It plays maybe, I don't know. Two seconds, three seconds, and then he does, you know, he sped it up and, and went to another spot, stopped it, and listened to it for another three or four seconds, and did it again. And at one point, he just took it off and slung it at us, did a whole crowd, you know, like, Jesus. This is what I said, oh my, here, what did I get myself into now? Well, I was there about maybe eight or nine months, and Liberty, as it turns out, bought Imperial Records mm -hmm. and all the Imperial catalog. It was a lab? All of the new one. Aladdin, right? exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And all of that minute shit, what, mm -hmm. everything. So, of course, they shipped me back, and mm -hmm. I went to work for Metric Music and Travis Music. Travis was the Imperial uh, stamp. Mm -hmm. So my first gig was, I had to go through all of the catalog, just to see what it was that I had. Now, can you imagine? And this was on 10 So this is your first publishing gig? And my this first is, publishing No, sorry, back to L.A. Back to L.A. Right. Back now, I went in L.A. Okay, and we were still in the Imperial offices, which was on Hollywood Boulevard. Mm -hmm. And Bob Scaff had taken over Imperial. And by this time, Phil Scaff, his brother, was a smart, lovely guy. I loved him. He ended up running, he was the GM of Liberty, right? Mm -hmm. So the, my first gig was that I had to listen to the, the catalog, mm -hmm. what, what they just bought. So here I am, I'm listening to all of this 
great shit. I mean, from Fats Domino to Aaron Neville, and and then of course it was what's his name? Uh, Toussaint. Toussaint, but it didn't have Toussaint's name on it. It was his mother's name. That was oh, on. that's right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and there's a tie there. I'll tie up in a minute. So, and I thought to myself, you know, man, these people are paying me to do this. I, I was just, I couldn't believe it. It was just great. And you were listening to the catalog so you could then be prepared to plug the songs? Yeah. Right. Plug the songs, whatever. But at the time, we had, under contract, Jackie DeShannon, there was a guy with the name of P.J. Proby, and Randy. Mm-hmm. So the first and record... Leon also? No. I met Leon the first night I was in L.A. He was playing a gig, and Jackie DeShannon, they wanted me to see Jackie because she was a, an artist on the living uh-huh. Was was sitting in with Leon's band. Oh, okay. I didn't know Leon or anything. I just it was this joint called Pandora's Box, which was right at the corner of Crescent Heights and Sunset. Mm. So we went to see her, and there was this very thin, sullen-looking guy playing the piano with a blue suit on and burgundy tie, and you know, he had such a style. I said, God damn, I wonder who that guy is. Well, it was Leon. Guitar was David Gates <laughs> from Bread. The bass player was. Uh, Carl, uh, um, he was with Derek and the Dominoes. Carl, uh, I can't remember his mm-hmm. last name. But they were all the guys who ultimately ended up mm-hmm. you know, with, with their own thing. Mm-hmm. But then what happened was, when I started making demos, I had known Leon. And Leon wasn't, he was just starting to play some A uh, Wrecking crew kind of dates. Yeah. Yeah, right. So this was like 64, yeah. late 63, 64. Mm-hmm. So I asked him to do a couple of demos. Mm-hmm. So that, that's where we oh, okay. started, you know. So what happened was, that, that's how we started, right? I did that for about, about a year, I'd say. And then what happened was, Dick Glasser, the guy I worked with, got a gig with Columbia as an A&R man. Mm-hmm. So they brought this guy in, and he was like one of these old-time song pluggers. And we just didn't get along. And at one point, I almost left... And I was going to go to work for Mickey. Uh, uh, he had all the Charlie Parker catalog, and he had a lot mm-hmm. of great shit. Golson, Mickey okay. Golson. So I said, I can't take this guy. And somewhere or other, Mickey heard that I was looking for a gig. So I almost took the gig, and what happened was I went back. Boy, talk about how things happen there. I went back, and Phil Scaff was GM, and we were good friends. And I said, Phil, I can't do this anymore. This guy's just fucking driving me nuts. Mm-hmm. I said, I got a gig. I think I'm going to have to take it. He said, oh, man, he said, I don't want you to leave. He's... So I said, well, look, I don't want to leave. I said, but I can't deal with this guy. And he said, tell me, man. He said, what would you really like to do? What would you really... I said, well, to tell you the truth, man, I said, I think I'd like to produce records. He said, you got it. That's it. So here I am, man. So <laughs> what tur- turns out that I was listening to, one of the people that Lou Chud, who owned Imperial, signed were the OJs. Right. And I... Became friends with these guys because mm-hmm. we were homeboys. You know, they, they were there from Cleveland. I was from Cleveland. Mm-hmm. So that was the first... Lips of Crisis. Actually, I did one record before that. I did Tommy Tedesco. Actually, somebody just found a fucking record for me. I think I got it on... It was, it was pretty damn good. I was, I was pretty shocked. And Nick DeCaro, who was a friend of mine, of he had gone to the Army. When he got out of the Army, I was still in publishing, and he called me, and I said, Hey, man, you got to come out of here. This shit's going on. I don't, I don't know. What all I can tell you is, there's a lot more going on here than Cleveland. Yeah. <laughs> so he came out, and I was keeping him and spending money, just doing like if if uh, you know somebody would write a song, I give it to him, and he would write the yeah, you know, yeah. the, the lead sheet. Charts, yeah. And at one point, Snuff Garrett, who was the big producer then, mm-hmm. was doing an album of Roy Orbison songs, all instrumental, and he didn't know who to use. And I said, 
Yeah, I said, you know, my friend Nick could mm-hmm. do this. I was still a song player, so I wasn't mm-hmm. producing records. And uh, he took the chance with him, and he did great. You know? mm-hmm. And Nick was like hanging out with me, because maybe he was making $75 a week, whatever it was that we were giving him to do this. So when I did Tommy, he did the charts, and he did a fucking great job. Mm-hmm. I, uh, Tommy couldn't believe it. So then the second one I did was the OJs. The Lipstick Traces, which right. is one of the tunes I heard when I was first going through all this shit. Right. Naomi Neville, that was the person who wrote oh, okay. it, but it was Alan. Right, 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 Alan. right. So the first thing that I did that was actually had any chance of getting out, because Eddie OJ was the biggest disc jockey in Cleveland, R&B disc jockey, mm-hmm. and he owned the OJs. Right, right. So the minute, you know, we did this record, boom, he put it out and it became... It was like a hit in Detroit, Cleveland, Chicago, yeah. you know. You're like Quincy, your first production's a hit. <laughs> what was the first thing that he did? That's my party. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That was. <laughs> I know he did that, but I, yeah. I didn't know that was his first yeah, that was his hit. his first yeah. real pop yeah, right. Yeah. So I want to ask you about Mr. Traces because I hadn't listened to it a while. I went back the other day and listened to him. In terms of the roots of your production approach, and this might just be where my ears are right now, but I hear that it kind of lands in this space between the Phil Spector, L.A. Wrecking Crew kind of sound and a mm-hmm. real rootsy R&B-ish kind of mm-hmm. approach. Is that where you were coming from? Is that your sensibility? Did you I, think about it going into, like, what influenced you as a producer? No, and I, now I, that you're finally in the studio making a record, this I is think, your sound, or you're just following I, your I, I think what, I was following my instincts, but I think what, what was a big influence on me in those days. It was everybody from Sam Cooke to um, who's the guy that uh, he still travels with, Aretha Franklin. Oh, wow. P.T. Barnum. Yes. P.T. Barnum, man. All that stuff he did. It was like sort of that. That's as close as I, I could say that I think that I was trying so to. So it was secular gospel. Yeah, and that's who I was telling Nick to listen to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? So, and Nick so did, you were listening to Atlantic Records at that time? Oh, yeah. Know, certainly Sam Cooke. Yeah, and Drifters and so, everything. Yeah, mm-hmm. all the... In fact, one of my first close friends when I went out to L.A. was this guy, Red Baldwin, who, who uh, funny enough, he was Lester Young's road manager at one point, mm-hmm. uh, and Billy Holiday's road manager at mm-hmm. one point. But he became, he was the L.A. promotion, regional promotion mm-hmm. for Atlantic. Mm-hmm. You know, I had first dibs on everything that came out of Atlantic at that point. All right. He would lay, he would lay it on me. Uh-huh. And I'm trying to think, it was around 1964, when I first heard the Antonio Carlos Chabin album, the Green album, they used to mm-hmm. refer to it as. Mm-hmm. I think it's The Composer Plays yeah. or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I was just, well, we, Nick and I both, we just couldn't get over these charts. The whole right. thing, it was just so magical. There was something mm-hmm. magical about it, you know? And then when I started making records, uh, by this time, you know, Lenny, Randy, and I were like this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I actually... Getting back to the publishing part, mm-hmm. I actually got Randy his first recording. Mm. It was uh, I Don't Want to Hear It Anymore, Jerry Butler. Ah, okay. And then the second one I got, it was a thing called Friday Night. It was uh, Joe, who was on VJ Records. I can't remember the guy's last name. Anyway, so the first two records that, that Randy got were things that I'd gotten ah. uh, on, on his songs. But we were, we were close. And then when I went to A&M, which was in October 65, mm-hmm. we still stayed tight. When I had my first hit record, I mean, big hit record, uh, Guantanamera, mm-hmm. I bought a home. I bought a small place in Studio City. Mm-hmm. And the first thing I got was I had this great den, small but, but really comfortable, 
I rented a grand piano and I put it, it was like 15 bucks a month, whatever it was. <laughs> and I put a grand piano in there. So then next thing you know, Randy and Lenny, so we were hearing all this shit that he was coming up with, you know, like let's drop the big one and all this stuff it was all in my, in my den, you know? Oh my God. And it became like the place to hang. Your place became you know? the hang, yeah, yeah. It was a well-spent 15 bucks a month. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. It was just, it was, it was great. That's great. It was just great. So that's the transition. So you were working, producing, and then you got the gig at A&M. Right? I had been very close friends with Jerry, and then Jerry introduced me to her. Mm -hmm. I think what happened was they heard Lipstick Traces, and there was something else I did with Jimmy, I uh, can't think of his last name. He was, one, he was with Brett. I did a record with him that actually came out nice. And I think they heard a couple of things I did. And Whipped Cream and Other Delights had just come out, and they had sold, I'll never forget, they sold a million mono and a million stereo. <laughs> unheard of to sell in the millions with albums. Yeah. To show you just how much albums meant in those days, there was a chick, her name was Nancy Ames. She was on Liberty. And she was the ambassador's daughter to like South America, somewhere in South America. And she was like a folk singer kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I think <clears throat> Al Bennett, who, who was part owner of Liberty, I think he was fucking her, actually. And um, But I'll never forget the guy, the guy that was a sales guy at Liberty, Don Bohan, he was trying to kiss ass with, with Al Bennett in a meeting once. And Al Bennett never really said anything. Never just sit there and would listen to everybody. And at one point, Don Bohan said, well, on this Nancy Ames album, uh, I believe that we can sell 25,000 albums. And at that point, uh, I forget, Al Bennett looked up and he said, Don, y'all sell 25,000 of that album? You're going to be shitting in high cotton. You're going to be what? You're going to be shitting in high cotton. <laughs> <laughs> so to show you that, you, know, you didn't sell albums in those days. No. So to sell two million albums, it was like oh ridiculous. Yeah. At that point, they asked me to join them. I and it was just to be a staff producer? Staff producer. And the sound of those records, like the Sam Piper's, Claudine, Montez, like mm -hmm. that, those stuff, it was a Latin thing. Like, was that the face of the label? Mm -hmm. Was it the post... Do you want a brass? Was it your taste? What was? What I think it was. It wasn't. It wasn't necessarily my taste. In fact, that's funny how this came around too. But what happened with the Sandpipers was this group that they had signed, and you know, so you know, this is how it was in those days. If you were a staff producer, you did you know what they said was on the label, and I mean they had decent enough voices, but there wasn't any you know real talent there to speak of. But they were part of this thing called the Mitchell Boys Choir. One thing they were able to do is they were able to sing phonetically in like five languages. Mm. And one, one day I was like, one night I should say, I was, I was there with Krasnow. We were just hanging out, you know. But I had, so you, you, were, you knew Krasnow at this point? Oh yeah, yeah. I knew Krasnow from like 1963. Oh, okay. 1963. He was a promotion manager. Exactly, yeah. And this disc jockey by the name of Johnny Hayes, who was a Carolina, he and I got this great apartment. It was, it was actually the apartment that Tyrone Power... And I think it was when he was married to that chick, Annabella. And it was just outrageous fucking apartment. And the chick who owned it was a multimillionaire. She had a travel agency. And I think she liked young boys. She ended up giving us this apartment for like $300 a month. I mean, in those days, not that $300 wasn't a lot a month to pay, but it was just but it was. And so we split it. And it was great. It looked like a New York. It had 20-foot ceilings in the, in the living room. It was Where just, was it? It was right on Hollywood Boulevard. Between Coenga oh, wow. and, and La Brea. Right, right. But uh, when that became <clears throat> the hang, I mean, now by this time, of course, you know, acid was 
running, it was coming out of the faucet, you know, <laughs> smoke, and we hadn't gotten in the blow yet. That, that came a little later, but it became the place to hang, you know. But anyway, I want to get back to uh, the Sandpipers. So what ended up happening? So they were signed, and their names were the Grads. The Grads. Yeah, so what <laughs> happened was we were listening to records, and Johnny Hayes was a great disc jockey and really, you know, loved music. And he just put on the Pete Seeger record of Blunt on America. Mm-hmm. And I flipped out, you know, I heard this, God damn. And I thought, wait a minute, that's something they could do. They speak Spanish, they speak several languages. And then what happened was when I got into it, I said, look, I want to do this thing. It turns out that I was smart enough at that point to realize, wait, I got to do some homework here. So I went back and I got a Weaver's record. Mm-hmm. And this was really, this, I think, it made it, instead of just, you know, a good record, made was the hook. When I heard the Weaver's record, on the Weaver's record, because the Pete Seeger record I heard was on Columbia, mm-hmm. and uh, he did the recitation, you know, simple man from the land of the palm trees, mm-hmm. whatever it was. Uh, as it turns out, you know, I thought, let me go back and want to hear, because I saw that the Weavers had done it. In those days, remember when they used to have those things A to Z, the, the phono logs? Oh, yeah, phono logs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The yellow okay. pages. Yeah. <laughs> so I found the Weavers record. On the Weavers record, Pete Seeger did the recitation just like he did on his own record in Columbia. But as he was giving the recitation, Ronnie... The chick that was with the with the, the Weavers mm-hmm. was singing the verse behind him, ah. and that I thought, wait, because it just held you, you know, it just grabbed you. I thought, shit, this is what I'm going to do. So, and Tommy Tedesco was my contractor in those days. Mm. I said, Tommy, I said, I, I got to get somebody to play guitar on instead of bass, and Tommy played all the parts. All that was Tommy, and there was a group of singers because in those days all the records. A good portion of them had background singers. Mm-hmm. And there was the Johnny, I can't remember the guy's last name, singers. Then there was uh, this chick, Jackie Ward, the Jackie Ward singers. Mm-hmm. She ended up owning the, the studio that was uh, in Montreux. Oh, okay. When it was the casino. But Jackie Ward, I called Jackie and I said, look, I, I've got to get somebody that could sing in Spanish. And I've got a part that she's mm-hmm. going to sing. I'll give her a thing to listen to. So she was one of the singers. And... Uh, that's it. We, you know, we did that. And the only thing I didn't have was the, the recitation. Mm-hmm. And I thought, shit, who am I going to get to do this? And I was friends at the time. Kraz and I were friends with Michael Nesmith from the Monkees. Mm-hmm. And he was a funny dude. And he was, he was very, he was the smartest of all oh, yeah. in the group. And he was, he was, you know, smart. And I said, Michael, I said, you got to do me a favor, man. You got to talk this thing. Right? So I said, all right, man. I said, I don't know if I can do it. So he just, he couldn't do it. He couldn't get serious enough. You know, he just kept laughing and shit. So that didn't work. So at one point I thought, my roommate, Johnny Hayes, the disciple, had a good, nice voice, deep voice. I'll get Johnny to do it. So I have him come in. Bruce Botnick, by the way, was my engineer. All right. We get to that part, ding, 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 And when he comes to the words mean, and suddenly he comes in. The words mean. It was like uh, I was, you know, he was giving me the top 40. <laughs> so, I, so I started, I said, John, look, man, do me a favor. I'm going to go out. By this time, I knew it by heart. I said, I'm going to go out and I'm going to, to do the recitation. Just listen to how I'm doing it so you right. get a sense, right? So I did it. Bruce stopped the tape at the end of the recitation. And I said, John, did you hear that? And Bruce said, I took that. He said, <laughs> you should hear it. 
<laughs> so you know how it is, man. Like all you do is—is is it right or isn't it right? Right. I mean, right. I'm think, not thinking about who's doing it or what. Right. So I went back and I listened. And I said, "Yeah, that works." Well, you know, my roommate didn't talk to me for six months. <laughs> but uh, and he was the one who had originally played me the fucking song. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so that was the first record. Right. And from there, you know, then this is one of the reasons I think why I ended up leaving. You know. Herb had just signed Claudine Langer because mm -hmm. Claudine had done this thing on uh, that Ben Gazzara. I can't remember what the hell the name of that TV show he had. It was a big TV show. And she had done a part where she was singing like uh, Gilberto. Mm -hmm. Not Joao, but yeah, this old lady. Right. Yeah. So I brought Nick in and I said, Nick, we got our work cut out for us here, man. This is like, you know. <laughs> and at least the chick knew she couldn't sing. You know? <laughs> And she was like, you know, just, oh, and whatever, okay, you know, whatever. So it turns out I found this song. There was this group called the Sopwith Camel. And mm -hmm. they did this thing called Hello, Hello. Well, we ended up doing that, and it broke wide open. Mm -hmm. I mean, we ended up selling a million albums. That fucking album, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> but it was from that song. Mm -hmm. And then we did a lot of other things. It was like a real production. And basically, it was Nick and I. I mean, Nick did the charts, and then Nick and I were singing all the background parts mm -hmm. and stuff. And then they asked me to do Chris Montez. And I loved Chris. Chris was a sweet guy. He's very mm -hmm. sweet. He was basically a surfer. You know, he yeah. had big knots on his knees. Yeah. But he was a nice guy. Yeah. Lovely guy. By this time, we had moved to La Brea, to the place where he ended. To the lot. When, yeah. Before that, we were on Sunset Boulevard in this Sal Hurok building. When I joined A&M, there were six of us. Mm-hmm. So by this time, we'd, we'd moved to, uh, to A&M, to the lot on, on La Brea. And I was just, you know, by, by this time, of course, shit was starting to break wide open. It was, you know, when a Pandora's box had opened. Mm -hmm. And uh, by this time, Kraz had started Blue Thumb. And uh, he said, man, come on, come on, let's start this label, man. He said, what are you doing here? See, you're just doing this, whatever you're doing here. Because I felt I was getting pigeonholed. I had a feeling like... They were coming to me with these kinds of things. The Latin-y stuff. Yeah, right? or just pop, sort of cutesy things, you know? Kitschy Latin poppy stuff. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So uh, I said, yeah, fuck it. And I, <laughs> I, I went, took a big cut in pay, and went. And how big was Blue Thumb at that point? Was Don there? Don hadn't joined yet. Okay. It was Kraz and I. Don joined, Don Graham joined about five, six months later. We, okay. We convinced him to come. Mm -hmm. But we had nothing. We had a W.C. Fields album. <laughs> And we had uh, um, Ride a White Swan. I remember the song, but I can't remember the name of the group. Uh -huh. uh, T-Rex. Okay. And, uh, oh, Ike and Tina. We okay. had Ike and Tina. Exactly. Not under contract. We just had, it was album by album. Uh -huh. And we, the first album when we came out with, with Ike and Tina was called Out of Season. Uh -huh. And our, the guy who was doing all our covers at the time, Barry Feinstein, who became a very dear friend, he convinced... I, I, we thought it was just incredible, but believe it or not, he was able to convince Ike to do this. But it was a fold out. Uh -huh. On one, it was the two of them, Ike was on the front, Tina was on the back, and they they were painted white face eating watermelon. <laughs> so, uh, and, and we are, so we, I mean, the, the covers we were doing were just outrageous. <laughs> uh, the first, when we officially announced Blue Thumb, our first ad, which, you know, well, Billboard wouldn't do it. Cashbox did. Huh. But it was two or three chicks, new chicks, like running away from something with just their asses showing, you know, <laughs> looking back like this. And it was just the blue thumbprint. And it said, 
Here come the blue thumb. <laughs> and that was that was our first our first ad. And Leon at that time had this little it was called a something choir. Jim Price was part of it. In any event, because I you know I had some relationship with him, and then it turns out that Kraz ended up getting to know Denny Cordell, so we signed uh, Leon. Yeah. Well, we didn't sign them. We took the label over and we distributed. But it was Shelter Blue Thumb. Oh, okay. Right. Then what happened was this is this is the most amazing thing to think about it. It should have made me realize that I was dealing with a, you know, Dave was not, and particularly in those days, the easiest guy in the world to deal with. But what happened was we got a call from from Chris, uh, um, who owned uh, Island. He owned Island. Chris oh, yeah, Blackwell. Chris Blackwell. Yeah. Okay. So Chris offered us Dave Mason for like fifteen grand. Actually, what happened? You had to buy the contract. Yeah, to buy him out of the contract was fifteen grand. Because due and to they, traffic, he still had rights to him as a solo artist? or had he Well, made? right. That's where we knew Dave from. Mm -hmm. Because though I loved Stevie's voice, mm -hmm. to me, when I heard that, particularly the second album, mm -hmm. where he had Feeling All Right, mm -hmm. Hole in My Shoe, all these great fucking songs, I was telling Kraz, I can't believe this. This guy's a fucking great writer. This guy mm -hmm. really knows how to write. Yeah. You know, we... We bought the contract, mm -hmm. and that's how we ended up with Dave. Right. So then, putting the the band together, you know, of course, well, I had Leon, I had great bass player Chris, I can't remember his last name. I had Jim Gordon, who I had been using on Sandpiper dates and you know all these other dates. It was the first time I heard him really step out, and he was the guy who played that great thing on Only You Know and I Know, uh, not Paradiddle, but he was just playing these drum things, uh -huh. you know, like a march kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. That was the first thing we did. Yeah. And I mean, we thought, this is it, man. Mm -hmm. We have hit gold here. That's a great record. And, uh, you know, Leon came in. I had, it was just loaded with everybody. You know, and the funny thing about it, they said that uh, that Bonnie and... Uh, uh, Delaney and Bonnie. Delaney and Bonnie. They sang on some of that thing, like on Waiting on You and, and a couple of things. They sang backgrounds on. But he didn't have anything to do with his tracks. I had read somewhere with Delaney uh, part of the making of the record. No. No. Though he did do... Only you know and I know. Right. Before we did it. Yeah. No, I knew that it, that had yeah. been a track by them, but then yeah. you had to hit with it. So with Blue Thumb, what I what I notice about a lot of this stuff is you had done a variety of types of productions when you got to Blue Thumb. Okay, so it wasn't so long as just a certain sound, but yeah, as a producer. Dan Hicks and the Hot Lick. Yeah, Dan Hicks with that acoustic swingy stuff. You had Phil Upchurch stuff with Donny Hathaway. Yeah. You did Gabor and Full Moon, which were like, Cree Taylor-y, jazzy stuff. Mm -hmm. Was it just a matter of your production sense was whatever's right for the project and you had a complete... Yeah. By this point, you would experience so many types of music. You just had a very diverse palette to tap into right. and a very diverse set of relationships to musicians to cast recordings. Right, yeah. So exactly. you were able to have enough vision to say, okay, this is the song, this is the artist, I'm going to surround it with the right team of people to realize their vision as opposed to, I have a time to look the sound. Right. 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 Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It was. It had to do more with when I left A and M. My thought was, I want to work with artists whose talent is obvious, and I just want to put them in the best setting mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. I can put them in mm -hmm. and show them at at their best. That's all I was interested in. I wasn't interested in getting my sound or whatever. So it all started with identif identifying the artist, say what, I, what defines them and what's most individual about them and what's right. most connective emotionally about them. Everything else is just to surround that. And yeah. then if the time comes so now, so 
you had a, you had a small independent label, so you weren't going into it thinking we better make sure we have a single. Oh yeah, what no, format? no, no, that was it the was... last thing on our mind. Yeah, it was the last last thing on our mind. You know, when I did the second Dan Hicks record, mm -hmm. it was really an, an, an eye opener in the sense where we first album was a live album, but the second album we did in the studio in Sunset Sound, and basically we set them up in a semicircle in the middle of the room. Now, they didn't have drums at that point, so it was a little easier to do. But it was just guitars. You know, Dan played rhythm, and there was a lovely guy playing um, lead lines and stuff. And two chicks singing, and and, um, and Sid Page on, on, on violin. Mm -hmm. But it was all live, and it was just, it was maybe the first time I realized how important that moment of magic, when mm -hmm. something just happens, you know, when you hear it, God damn, that's great, you know? And then to be able to recognize that moment when that mm -hmm. moment happens mm -hmm. that's the most I think one of the most important things it's not not even if you know the artist wants to do it another five times or three times whatever it is as long as you had a sense as to wait a minute there's something going on here and then being able to convince them saying look if we fix the bridge here or if we you know you redo whatever if, mm -hmm. if there's anything let's say that's bothering them about it I said because you know you're going to do this I said look I don't know you want to do another five it's fine but you're going to get what you didn't think you got in that one right. Mm -hmm. And then everything else is going to be yeah, the, the magic will not. But the magic yeah. is going to be there. You're better off trying to fix the thing that's got that mm -hmm. thing, that magic. Mm -hmm. But that was when I first realized, I said, God damn, there's you know, something about the moment, the performance. That's what it's all about. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter how you get there or what it is you do to get there. Mm -hmm. If you get there... You, you hit a home run. Yeah. And then what happened was when you know when when we sold Blue Thumb and I went to went to Warner's. First record I did was a B. W. Stevenson record. B. W. Stevenson had this great record I called Maria. It was on RCA and guy could sing. He was great, but he was really he had alcohol problems and it, and it didn't turn out great. And I was sort of floundering there for a month or two. And I remember getting together with Lenny. We had dinner one night. I said, Len, you know, man. And at this point, we had to warn Lenny was president at this point. No, no, he was, no, he was head of AR. Head of AR. Okay. And you know, he brought me over. Yeah. But I told him, I said, Len, you know, I'm, you know, I know, of course. And believe it or not, my biggest influence was Creed Taylor. Yeah. And it wasn't anything in the in, in the sense as far as the uh, techniques. Well, I guess in the sense maybe there was some technique in there too as to what it is he did. He had. The good sense at that time where he knew enough about pop music and, you know, from California Dreaming with Wes to, mm -hmm. to uh, he just had that thing. Mm -hmm. And I really respected that. I thought, God damn, because I got it. Mm -hmm. I got it. And I bought every fucking Greed record there was mm -hmm. from Verve and <clears throat> the first Benson stuff he did on Verve. And I remember saying to Lynn, I said, Lynn, you know, I got, I think I'm, I could be going down the wrong path here. I said, I really have a sense I said, I really know my way around pop music. I, mean, I love pop music. I said, but I'm, I gotta, I can't put this flame out that I have for jazz. Mm -hmm. I just got, you know, there's something about it. It's been part of me all my life. Well, not all my life, but at least until I was in mid-teens. And, uh, and I remember at the first he said to me, he said, geez, I don't know how Moe's gonna, you know, go for this. And he didn't like try to talk me out of it or anything. He just gave me his opinion. But within two months. And this is what's so fucking weird. If I was like one of these, you know, believers in faith, faith and all that shit, you know, I'd say, because it's like within two months, somebody turned me on to 
a record that this guy had made, Michael Franks. Mm-hmm. And I remember hearing out that. So those first demos on previously unavailable, that stuff. Yeah. yeah. It was owned by a, a right. cosmetic company or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something. yeah, 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 cosmetic yeah, yeah. Company. I can't remember the yeah, name yeah, of the company. Yeah, yeah. It was a well-known cosmetic company, yeah, yeah. too. And the guy who owned it, you know, loved jet music and shit. Yeah. And he gave him the bread to do this. Yeah. So I thought, man, this guy's a good writer. He's really right. And I mean, it was sort of like Moe's, but, you know, it wasn't Moe's. Yeah. It wasn't quite Moe's, but it, it was that kind of thing. But very smart writing. Really smart and really, really poetic yeah. and interesting. So I signed them. They, they let me sign. No, no sweat, whatever. So Michael was your first signing when you had to learn. So Michael was my first signing, exactly. Yeah. BW had been signed. Right, right, right. But Michael was my first signing. And then I stopped and I started thinking about it. And of course, my pals were, you know, uh, Joe, by that time, Joe Sample was yeah, yeah. a good friend and everything. I thought, shit. The only guy, and I know he never forgave me for it, but the only guy I didn't use was Sticks. But I, I, I used Larry, right. uh, Joe, right. and then Wilton I had playing bass. Exactly, yeah. But that was really the, the key there. Hmm. When I, um, because what happened was when we went in, and the first thing we did was Popsicle Toes. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry, it wasn't Popsicle Toes. It was the opening cut. It was the thing he had done for, for a film, yeah, and I ended up um, not using it. Love is it had a nice uh, bridge too. Love is like two dreamers dreaming the exact same dream. Right, right? That's, that's the lyric. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And Joe came in. Night moves. Night moves. Night moves. Right, right, right. Yeah. Joe came in and he said. Man, he said, this, this, this cast, this cast is really good, man. What, what's, what's with this guy? I'm glad you think that way. I think the guy writes great. So then, of course, the second thing we did was Popsicle Toes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, boom. For oh, yeah. No, that record. I mean, th- that record and Sleeping Gypsy were hugely influential to me. Absolutely. Sleeping Gypsy to me. Yeah, Sleeping great. Gypsy. In fact, when I finally had a chance to work with Michael and we did the Abandoned Garden record, mm-hmm. my dream was to try to recapture... Sleepy Gypsy, now because that was that, was that Brazilian, that, that record that was changed record. my life. And, that, and see, what happened was, by that time, I had signed Jobim. Mm-hmm. And then uh, what happened was, we were just talking, you know, and he says, oh, man, I'd love to do something, you know, I love Jobim. So I said, fuck it, let's see. By that time, I, I, by that time, I think I had done Benson. Right. So I had enough juice where I, you know, if I said I wanted to go to Brazil, they were going to say, what the fuck are you talking All about? Right. So I said, well, fuck it, man, let's go. Let's, let's go to Brazil. <laughs> so I called, you know, I, I, Tom. I told Tom I was, gonna, I, I was on my way, you know, I was coming to do this, this kid. I'm in Brazil. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and then, of course, Joao Donato was there already. And I had, uh, we had Joao. Did you ever hear the record that we did at Blue Thumb with Joao Donato? No, I haven't. Oh, my God. It's oh, just, it's unbelievable. It's one of the great fucking records. Oh, wow. But so I called Joao. And then Joao Palma... By this time, who had been with Brazil 66, so I knew from you know, A&M, he had moved back. So I called Joao. I said, hey, man, look, I don't know how to reach Joao Donato. Because anytime, even when, when he lived in L.A., when Joao Donato lived in L.A., he and Sun Ra were the only two guys where anytime that we had to reach him, they'd call on the phone and like with Joao. I'd say, Joao, I'm on the other phone, man. Can I call you? I'm on a phone booth, man. They didn't have phones. They had <laughs> fucking phone booths, right? So I didn't know how to reach Joao. Could be the only thing Joao and Summer have in common. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I called Joao Palma and I said, yeah. hey man, you know, I'm coming 
Rio, man, we're going to do this record. I said, I'd love for you to, you know, play it. I'd love for you to, do you know where Joao is? And he said, yeah, yeah, I know how to reach out. I said, great, man. So, and that was the band. I mean, that was an insane time because there was only one studio in Rio at that time. And I'll never forget, we walked in. They had three reels of tape, three reels of two-inch tape. <laughs> and so we had to keep going over shit, right? And we could only monitor mono. We could, of course, record, you know, and even as we were listening to it, we could hear it in stereo. But playback, we could only play back in mono. Oh, my God. Then when we did, and you could tell from his solo, when we did Buana, He's No Home, it got to the piano solo, and Joao started playing, and I kept noticing, he was like, kept hitting this, this note, and it was holding the note, and he was looking down. Turns out that the, the pedal, mm -hmm. the, the, the sustain pedal, okay. had come apart, and he couldn't get it, you know, it couldn't <laughs> play, but it was like, it didn't fuck him up. I ended up using the solo, because the oh, solo wow. was insane, you know, it was just oh. great. So about midnight, the guy that was running the studio came in and he said, he said, I'm going home. Don't worry. He said, you know, you got the second who's worth nothing. But I mean, you know, you got the second. He'll, okay, great. So we stayed about 1 o'clock, 1.30 in the morning. The second said, hey, uh, I'm going home. Said, Just close the door behind you, you know. <laughs> so this was recording in Rio in, oh, in 1977. You know? Well, one of the things that I always was struck by your work and certainly influenced by your work and when you bring up Creed and what's similar to me of that period because right around the same time that I was into those records that you had worked on I was into Steely Dan and certainly Creed stuff a lot of CTI records because as a musician as a drum player I liked Red Clay and a lot of those records but also really loved all the bigger productions he did and that sound and just that concept of the importance of casting what blew me away about the Michael Franks records for example is there'd come a time for a solo and there's Michael you know, on I Really Hope It's You, that Michael Brecker solo, or, you know, David on Jive, where it's like, what casting choice can I make at this point to help further the story of the artist? Where yeah. it goes to a solo, and it's like, who can tell me what the words can't tell me? And how perfectly cast so many of those solos were. You know, the casting of Joe Sample with Michael, which, frankly, I wouldn't have thought that would have made any sense. Because Joe's got that pecky kind of mm -hmm. semi-aggressive pocket. And Michael has this floaty thing, a lot of times double vocals, and it's like this thing. But somehow it just meshes so perfectly. Well, partially because of Larry also on that, those records. Yeah. Because yeah, Larry always, same thing with the Steely Dan records, he was the glue. There was just this, he somehow was, he would play the line that connected the aggression and the laid-back part of it. Well, you know, one thing I've discovered with a lot of players and artists is that if they're doing their own record, mm -hmm. sometimes it could get impossible. I mean, I, I'd go to these, these Crusader sessions, <laughs> and these guys would just be arguing the entire fucking time that they were you yeah. know, doing things because there was this you know, chemistry thing. They had known each other so long, and they <clears throat> all this weighing. And, and sometimes they could become convinced, whether it's subconsciously or not, they become convinced that the tension is what the groom music comes out of. I think a lot of times it could thrive on the conflict. It could be. That's a good point. But what happens is I noticed it, it right down to Ricky Lee Jones. When I had Ricky Lee, you know, to do a record with Ricky Lee is, is, is you know, next to impossible. I, and she's just a super talent. But when I, you know, had her come in to do uh, that duet with Dr. John, mm -hmm. man, she came in and Make boom, yeah. bam, that was it, in and out, you mm -hmm. know. And a lot of these, when they're doing so, I, I'll give you another great one. Wayne Shorter doing the, the soundtrack 
to the Blanberry Glen Ross. Or when I really realized it is when I heard, I'll never forget the first time I heard the uh, Don Henley record, and that soprano solo came in, and I said, who the fuck is that, man? It was gorgeous, it was beautiful. And I, you know, I get the album, I look at it, and it was Wayne. (laughs) You know, and I thought, man, I never heard Wayne play like this. But it's like a lot of times what happens is when they get into their own thing, yeah. shit gets lost somewhere. Like if they're just playing something that's, there it is, and they got it sticking in this area, yeah, you know, yeah. suddenly, you know, you get something totally, totally yeah. different. And with Joe, that's what happened. I think <clears throat> Joe, Joe is one of the great compers. Mm-hmm. He knows how to comp, whether it's a, a, a vocalist or... or very orchestral, very... Just knows, very, and he knows how to yeah. set a song up. He always would come up with a hook of some sort, man. He'd always know mm-hmm. how to just set it up, you know? Mm-hmm. That's why, it, it, and especially, and if the stuff, if the material is good, mm-hmm. forget it. Yeah. No, that's the joy about working with certain types of musicians and having them in that element. And it's funny when you, like, if you bring up that subject and talk about Michael Brecker, and I wanted to ask you about that. Like, how did, you know, obviously Cityscape is one of the most influential records to me and was such an important record. Although when it came and went, I don't know if everyone realized it. I think it's a record that's really stuck with a lot of people. Yeah, well, you know, what happened was I almost signed the Brecker Brothers when they were on uh, Clive's label and, uh, oh, and yeah, I don't know what happened on there, yeah, but somewhere or other, it, it didn't work out. Then I started using them on, I, you know, on Michael's record and so forth. So then, when we were going to do Klaus's record, how that happened was Klaus had played me this thing, Gator Dreams, which he had written for the American Ballet Company, mm-hmm. and he sent it to me. He sent me a video of the ballet, and and I heard it, and I thought, God, I said, Klaus, see, you know, man, I think we could make this thing if you could just figure out where and how we can put solos in this thing. We can do this thing and bring in all these, these people. Mm-hmm. I had Benson and I had Sanborn. And I had... So at that point, when we got to, um, just one blank of the t- title of the, the, the Brecker thing on, on there. Um, oh God, I can't, I can't, I can't think of it. Capri- I think that was Caprice? like- Caprice? Caprice, right, that's right, it, right, thank right. you. It has this big orchestral opening mm-hmm. and then it just falls into this up-tempo right. uh, solo part. Mm-hmm. And at that point, Klaus had never heard of uh, Michael Brecker. Mm-hmm. And he was just going on, on, you know, me telling him, yeah, this guy could play, and, you know. So we got to this solo part. Klaus was like, <laughs> I couldn't believe what he was hearing, you know. And that was, I, th- I don't think we did, I think we did one take, and then we did some fixes. And that was it. Wow. Uh, so that's what, and then, you know, Klaus was completely, you know, we got to know now with this guy. Mm-hmm. And then when we did Cityscape, Michael was... He was going in uh, uh, to rehab. Yeah. So right now we're on that same period. That record and Three Quartets and Word of Mouth, Jocko. See, I saw, you know, the, the birthday concert, Jocko's birthday concert, which was down in Miami. I was still in school in Miami. Mm-hmm. And we the secret gig that was for Jocko's birthday, we all went to. Because I was down in Houston, Miami. And it was with Mincer and Michael and Erskine and all of them playing with Jocko's big band, playing all this Word of Mouth music before the Word of Mouth record. And I think the next day, Mike went in the arena. We, we, had, we had to cancel. We had to cancel the dates. And, uh, and then the what happened? Well, well, excuse me. We, we, we didn't cancel the dates. No, we decided to do the dates and then we were going to do Michael at a later right, time. Exactly. So we did everything but Michael. Yeah. And then when Michael heard it, he was saying, shit, I don't know what the fuck am I going to play on this thing. One loose end I wanted to tie up, whether there's something to talk about or whether you want to talk about it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, Blue Thumb and the ending of Blue Thumb. Mm-hmm. 
What happened to Blue Thumb? Well, listen, there's several things that happened to Blue Thumb. Mm -hmm. First of all, we were, we were the small company in the midst of what started to become the new business model, in a sense, where <clears throat> the majors were just, of course, it was suddenly a feeding frenzy going on for acts, for artists. So as it turns out, just about every act, with the exception of, I think, Dan Hicks, and maybe there were a few others, you know, Ike and Tina, the, the original, because we had two Ike and Tina generations. Mm -hmm. Those were, you know, we, we got them one because Krasnow was very close. Kras was close with, uh, with Ike and Tina. Mm -hmm. Dan Hicks, I basically, you know, let him know what it was that I, that I wanted to do and what we wanted to do. And what would happen is every time we would make an album and there was any sort of success whatsoever, like T-Rex, Dave Mason, mm -hmm. uh, Mark Allman, the Pointer Sisters, that was, a, that was actually a, a, the guy out of uh, San Francisco whose name might, evades me right at this mm -hmm. moment. But the ones I mentioned are, 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 are a good enough example. Mm. The minute we came out and it was successful to the point where we had sold maybe 100,000, 200,000, mm -hmm. the majors would come in and snap them up. Now, I so you didn't have long-term contracts with these artists? It was no, no, no. A one-off or... Well, one-off or, or even, uh, you know, take for instance now in the case of uh, Dave Mason. Basically, they came along and just offered him a lot of money, you know, mm -hmm. talking like million plus. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, you know, they just went to a lawyer and said, look, you know, Get us out of this thing, mm -hmm. you know. And then the lawyers would figure out, hey, like, you know, either right, you just check, if you override, or not even to that. I mean, they oh, would really? just leave and say, let, let them sue us, right? You know, God. what are they going to do? Are they, they going right, to, right, you know, right. how much money do they have? They don't even have enough money to, right, right, to right, do right. what they want to do here, let alone sue. Right. <clears throat> so, a lot of that was going on. And you know, my my partner, who you know, I'm still I'm very close with Bob now. Yeah, and I've been. I mean, you know, it's one of the first guys I met when I came to LA. Oh, of course. But Bob is the type of individuals where when the same thing happened at, at uh, Warner's, he was chairman of Electra. Exactly. But Bob is the kind of guy where when he starts reading, basically figuring out it wasn't going anywhere or the ship was going to hit the fan soon, which is what happened at Warner Brothers, yeah. Bob just goes fucking left. Oh, okay. If the shit were going to hit the fan business-wise in terms yeah, of he's just, revenue? Yeah, you know, I think he gets to a point where he's like, well, <clears throat> oh, fuck it and... Just so this is becoming too much of a pain in my ass. And he starts pulling riffs, okay? okay. So uh, we had a deal with Paramount at the time, and, um, and Paramount just didn't have a clue as to what was going on. They were owned by Gulf Western at mm -hmm. the time. Right. They just wanted to get out of the business. Mm -hmm. So they found a few fishy deals that Sal Licata, who was our partner, you know, Sal just died, by the way. Exactly, yeah. Sal and I figured out something was fishy here, and we... Uh, Confronted him with it, and you know, back and forth. As it turns out, right at that time, Gulf Western was just trying to get rid of the music business. Exactly. They wanted out. Yeah, all right. So they sold the company to ABC. Right. And they threatened Bob. Whatever it was, it was a petty shit. Yeah. It wasn't that. It was like serious larceny here. You know? Yeah. But whatever it was, it was enough where they threatened him because he owned the biggest part. He Perceived owned fifty percent plus. Of the company, and then Sal and I had the rest. I see. If they were going to do anything, they had to do it through, through him, so they threatened him. Right. So he sold his uh, his shares. Yeah. And then the next thing you know, Sal and I were left with ABC, mm -hmm. and they started giving us shit, like, you know, sending us letters saying, 
report for duties uh, on, on this Monday or whatever it is. Fairmont that was run by that guy. Um, <coughs> oh, oh, talking about thieves. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Jay Lasker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they said, because we had leased cars through the company, bring your uh, keys in, return your keys at the desk. And, <laughs> yeah, fuck these guys. So we immediately with that, we went to a lawyer. Right. We explained the whole situation out, and it was Bruce Raymer, gang tire, tire Brown, mm -hmm. Bruce is still a good friend. Mm -hmm. We ended up, the day we showed up at ABC the following mm -hmm. week, this was like either a Friday or the, or the Monday before we had to turn the keys in. So that's what we call, uh, I knew Bruce. Bruce had handled some stuff for us at Blue mm -hmm. Home anyway. In that week, we built a case. The Monday we were supposed to show up, we showed up, dropped the keys at the desk, and left. Mm -hmm. and an hour later, they were filed with mm -hmm. a lawsuit from Salomon. Right. So within a week, we settled, and they gave us whatever it was. And basically, that was it. And so then, once Blue Thumb was done now, where, what was the timing between you going to Warner's and the Barbara Streisand way we were? Was that around well, well, No, the way we were, I was still at Blue Thumb. Oh, you were? Okay. The reason I was able to do it is because, you know, I was a, you know, an owner, part right. owner of a company, and I mean, I just did it. Oh, okay. I was able okay. to do it. I didn't have to, like, get permission from yeah. anybody or whatever. It's not like it's not a positive thing right. for you. As a and it was the last year that I was at, at Blue Thumb. Right, right. Okay. And how did that come about? Uh, Charlie Koppelman, who was then at uh, Sony... Well, it was at Sony. I think it was still Columbia. Yeah, mm -hmm. he was at Sony Publishing, or he was at Columbia. He no, he was at Sony. He was running A and R. Right. In fact, that's how I, I ended up meeting Goddard Leverson because oh. we had to, he had lunch with Goddard at uh, the Polo Lounge, oh, and wow. he asked me to come inside. It was great. I mean, just oh, meeting him was he was a great guy too. Uh, anyway, uh, Charlie called me, and I knew Charlie because my wife worked for Cobbleman Rubin. Oh, okay. That's how I met Jill. And Gary Klein actually introduced us, and Gary worked for a couple of women, and then mm -hmm. followed Charles mm -hmm. to uh, Columbia. Okay. So they called me and said, would you be interested in doing Streisand? Uh, you know, obviously, yes. Right. So um, I did that, and then it was within a year that the Blue Thumb fiasco happened, and I left, and um, Sal went his way. And I went mine. I mean, yeah. we were still friends and all exactly, that. But, yeah. uh, you know, what happened was I was, of course, very close with Lenny. Right. So the minute that Lenny knew that I was uh, free, right. they had actually tried to make a deal with us, with Blue Thumb. But they didn't want the record company. They just okay. wanted us. They wanted you and Krasna. Yeah. Yeah. Now, when did Krasna come to Warner versus when you went there? Well, Kras came six months after I did. Okay. And it was, listen, i got to tell you, it was the smartest thing that they ever did. Because, okay. you know, up, up until that point. They kept trying to get into the R&B business, and right, they right. never, they, they had a, a, a company called, uh, not Loma Records, what was it called? It was a. It was Loma. Was it Loma? Loma? Well, then yeah, that's yeah. what it was. I think yeah. Loma was yeah. right before that. Point. Yeah. Bob started <clears throat> Loma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nothing ever happened with it. But in any event, Mo was, you know, a very smart guy, obviously, mm -hmm. and he said, you know, we got to hire him. And at the time, he thought maybe there was some trouble between us, and, mm -hmm. you know, we'd had some words and so forth, but I, I said, look, first of all, I said, whether or not there was any problems with us or not, one thing I can't say is anything against this guy's taste and knowledge and, and being able oh, to sign acts, yeah. you know? Oh, yeah. So I said, no, I think it's a great move. Yeah. So Mo signed him, yeah. and of course, that was the most successful R&B department that, mm -hmm. uh, that ever existed there. Right, 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 right. From the time he got there, and then when he left, it exactly. fell apart. But no, that was I it. was there during many of the attempts to... 
do something in that area and it yeah, never, yeah. Yeah. never got it together. Because Bob had, just Bob knew how to deal with RBX. Mm -hmm. He just had, from Argentina on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm James Brown. He worked for James Brown for a year. Right. So when, um, were you involved in the Benson coming over and the whole CTI conflict and all that? What was happened that there was, for a brief moment, flashback to 1973, you know, I just, you know, what we do, we sit around and listen to music all, all, all day, mm -hmm. all night. You know, I basically got Bob into Benson. This is when he was on CTI. Yeah. So he, he was obviously very aware of him. And then he became friends with uh, Todd Barkin. Mm -hmm. who had Keystone Corner. Mm -hmm. And Todd knew Benson, of course. So uh, Bob called me one day, and he said, he said, I got a, how do he put it? He said, I have a match made in heaven. I said, what were you talking about? He said, I got a chance to sign George Benson. Would you like to work with him? I said, <laughs> are you kidding? Absolutely. So um, we had a meeting. And I was amazing, man, because I didn't really realize that it had been something I said. He showed up at my office with his manager at the time, this uh, funny dude, very serious. I think he was a part of the Black Mafia. <laughs> but uh, he was his manager at the time. So they came in for a meeting. And in the course of the meeting, I, you know, we had this meeting. It was an hour, whatever it was. And next thing you know, Bob called me and said, hey, man, we're going to sign him. You know, you work with him. So about a year or so later, after Breezin had become a mm -hmm. smash and all of that, and we were at his Mo's 50th birthday. I'm mm -hmm. So it was about 1977. I was sitting at the bar with George, and George said, Brother, he said, you may not remember this. He said, but when we had that first meeting, and I had asked him, I said, and it just so happened I had seen him three years before at the Keystone Corner. I didn't realize, for some reason or other, there were only two albums that I knew of that he had sung on. It was uh, uh, The Other Side of Abbey Road. He did Here Comes the Sun. And on the first Columbia record, mm -hmm. Benson Murder, he, mm -hmm. he sang Summertime. Right. But I had, some way or other, I had missed, even though I had... Little bits. Yeah, he had done a few of the others. He yeah, no, no. Whatever. Since then, I... You go back others, and find them. But those were the only two... He always kind of snuck a vocal on here and there. Right. Yeah. But those are the only two I had heard. Exactly. So uh, I asked <clears> him, I said, uh, how come you don't sing on your albums? And as I said, I didn't even know about those two at the right, time. Right, right. But what happened was, I had seen him at Keystone Corner. All right. Schmidt and I were in town. He was doing a Jefferson Airplane. I was doing Dan Hanks. We had dinner, and we were driving back to the hotel. We passed Keystone Corner. I said, George Best. I said, stop the car. <laughs> got to go in. And he, the first thing he did, he sang Summertime. Mm -hmm. And I thought, shit, this guy could really sing. And I never forgot it. Three years later, we were having this meeting, and I said, how come you don't sing on your albums? <laughs> he said, well, Creed, you know... I think he wants to make me the next uh, Wes Montgomery, and he wants you know, yeah, yeah. to do instrumentals. I said, man, I said, I happened to see you at the Keystone Corner. I said, you can really sing. And I said, look, man, I'm not that I, you know, I think that we should do an all vocal album. I said, but if we find the right song, mm -hmm. you know, we should try it. He said, yeah, man, I'm, I'm into it, whatever. And then what happened was we had signed David Sanborn. And Sanborn's manager at the time was this guy, John Court. Mm -hmm. who had been partners with Albert Grossman. I mean, it was a small business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, the demo that they played us for Sanborn was an instrumental version of This Masquerade. Uh. And I heard the song, <laughs> and I said, what the fuck do I know this song from, man? I know this song from somewhere. And he said, well, it's the Leon Russell song, This Masquerade. I said, oh, shit. Well, it turns out I went back and listened to it. Well, no wonder I didn't hear it, because the way Leon did it, it was like the opening, I think he put through like a graphic equalizer or something. Yeah. 
to make it sound like he was talking on the phone with this chick. Oh, really? Oh, okay. And I just, the song didn't translate. You know, right. I just didn't hear it. But when I went back and I heard it, God damn, you know, because of course Sanborn sold the melody. And then I heard it and I said, this is really a great song. So I played it for George. Yeah. He liked it. And it wasn't until, actually, at first we were thinking about it as, a, as an instrumental and we were rehearsing with the band. This was like a week before we went in to record. This is why it only took us three days to do that mm -hmm. because we rehearsed for three or four days beforehand. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, man, this has got a great lyric. So it turns out Phil Upchurch had just got married. Phil's uh, newlywed bride was there. And uh, I said, well, I can't remember her name. I said, Duke, could you do me a favor if we go to Tower Records and get the album? So she got the album. She transcribed the lyrics, and we uh, we rehearsed it right there. Mm -hmm. I think there were six cuts on that album, mm -hmm. and five of the six cuts were first takes. Well, uh, so affirmation and, and breathing and all, all first, first takes. takes. Wow. I can't remember which one we did. Maybe two takes or something. I mean, that was mm -hmm. never. I don't think we did one three takes on anything. Right. The only one that we didn't use was down here on the ground, which I think ended up on an album. I think somebody put it out mm -hmm. on some compilation yeah. thing. And it turns out I had Harvey, uh, Harvey Mason playing on everything. And George had his drummer. I can't remember the guy's name. I think he felt guilty. So when we got to down here on the ground, he said, well, what else? You know, I said, well, hey, man, we just did everything that we rehearsed. <laughs> so he said, well, hey, man, we got some time here. Why don't we, you know, let's do down, down here on the ground. I said, all right. And he said, hey, man, why don't you, because he figured he'd, he'd do the tune, been playing it on, on their gigs. We did a couple of takes, but it didn't. Yeah. It wasn't anywhere near the other stuff. Right, right. So, okay. and the whole issue with CTI, the conflict and this lawsuit and all that stuff relative to him signing yet still owing CTI. The deal apparently was that he owed him an album, and the way they were supposed to do it was we were going to do one on Warner Brothers, and then he was going to do his album next. Right, right, right. Okay. What happened was, in the interim, Creed. It's amazing because Creed is like. You know, if you ever talked to Creed or met Creed or whatever, he looks like this fine, upstanding. Right. And meanwhile, what did he do? He puts out a Joe, uh, what's the tenor player's Joe name? Farrell. Joe Farrell. Joe Farrell album. And he put George Benson, Joe Farrell. Right, Benson and, and Farrell. And Benson yeah. Farrell. And it had a picture, that a Polaroid picture apparently, that he had taken in front of Rudy's place. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and that was the album. So Benson said, Fuck that, you know. That's his album. <laughs> well, I think that probably Warner's got a little arrogant in uh, uh, the way they went after it. And so it came off seeming like there's this poor little label trying to make a living in this giant model. Exactly, in, right. Steals his act and blah, blah, blah. So they had to settle with him. So, um, so we talked already about how then you left, you went to A&M, then you came back as VP of A&R back in 79, back to Warner. Right. Um, the only other thing I want to get into about Warner, obviously, um, the roster that you had built there was such a huge crossover roster. Well, I wanted to bring up Miles and the relationship with Miles. Obviously, we could talk for hours about Miles and about your relationship and how that came about. But is there kind of a quick way for you to tell the story about how you started working with Miles? Well, I, you know, that, that actually started through, turns out the, that, that uh, Cicely Tyson's, I don't know if it was her lawyer or or friend or whatever. This guy's name was David Franklin. He was, mm -hmm. a, he was a, a lawyer in Atlanta. He calls Mo and said, look, he said, would you be interested in Miles Davis? Because I think what happened was it got to the point that uh, he thought that Winton has suddenly become the star yeah. at Columbia. 
Yeah, so he with George and Winton and Miles. Yeah, came, you know, right. Didn't he, like, George called Miles and said, hey, will you call Winton on his birthday? Stuff yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah, was that? Well, he was like, he really didn't, didn't like Winton. Yeah. He kicked him off stage once. Right. So they had a meeting with him. Lenny and Mo had a meeting with, 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 uh, with Miles uh -huh. and David Franklin. So I was in New York at the time. And uh, so they said, uh, hey, listen, you know, he's got this guy that works for us, Tommy Lapuba. He's in New York. You're in New York. So I got a call from Lenny. And he said, hey, he said, you know, he, would you be interested in signing Miles Davis? Or, you know, doing the work with I said, look, I said, yes and no. I said, you know, I've heard such horror stories about this guy that I don't know, man. I said, you know, could I take a meeting with him? You know, let's get, get together with him. Well, it turns out he was going on the road and he was at the Montreux Festival. So I flew over, you know, for sort of killing two birds with one stone. I was friends with, you know, Claude. And so I went, met him there, spent a little time with him there, spent some time in his dressing room. I think maybe I got together with him after the gig for a little bit. Basically, that was it. And he said, well, let's get together when we get in New York. So in the meantime, I started looking for some stuff. And, and by that time, of course, he had a little bit of success with... Um, Under arrest time after time. Time after time. Yeah. So I was looking Human for... Human nature. That yeah, idea. right. So when he gets back, he comes over to my apartment, and um, I had a lot of art. You know, I collect... You know, I collect art. And he came in, and the first thing he did, he saw all the art. You know, and he was... He flipped out. And he was, mm -hmm. you know, looking at this stuff. And then I played him a couple of things, and he kind of liked where I was going, you know, with this stuff. What were you playing? Was it... I played him... George now, who's... No, well, no, I hadn't gotten that yet. Wasn't back at Ritual yet. No, it wasn't back at Ritual. I hadn't gotten that yet. But uh, what happened was I had, uh, what's that group? The guy's name, he ended up becoming a huge, well, they were, the, 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 the group was big, but then he became even bigger. George, and he got, he was the guy who got caught trying to pick somebody up in a public restaurant. George, in, but, not George Michael. George <laughs> Michael. George Michael, okay. Okay, so what was the name of the group? Wham. Okay, so there was this Wham hit. Careless okay. Whisper? No, it was no. Careless Whisper. It was a... It was the first thing they had. It was the first hit that they had. And it had a nice melody to it and everything. Yeah, Careless Whisper was their was that, first big ballad. That, what was in the ballad, though? This was not a ballad. So maybe it was one of the, okay. was the second or third okay. thing. But anyway, he liked where I was going, you know? Mm -hmm. And then George sent me a backyard ritual. Mm -hmm. And I thought, shit, this is, this is great. So I played in those, these two things. He wanted me to hear the stuff that he had done with the guys. The rubber band the, sessions. Right. Which, to me, I, yeah, I ended up doing the box set and, re and yeah. remixing and putting out some of the rubber band stuff. There was I some nice trumping up at the band and all that. Yeah. not. No. And uh, so, in any event, I played in these two things, and then I thought, shit, you know, and I had been working with with, uh, with Marcus. Yeah. And with I did, Bob and Dave and I, exactly and all was all yeah. that stuff, and I knew that he could write. He was a great writer. <clears throat> so I and said, and he had been a Miles band. And he had been a <laughs> Miles band. So when I said to him, I said, look, man, I said, you know, I've been doing a lot of stuff with Marcus Miller, and I, you know. We had to call him and see if he's got any tunes. He goes, oh, Marcus, man, I love Marcus. And so that was, that's how that yeah, yeah. started. I called Marcus. Of course, he was interested. And he worked out. He said, I got this one tune. I didn't even have his name at that point. It wasn't too, too. But that was the first thing. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and in my estimation, that was the best thing on the album. Mm -hmm. It was the first time that I had heard Miles play that hard and that much feeling. That was the best solo I'd heard him play since mm -hmm. you know the early shit. Mm-hmm. I mean, before Bitches Brew. Mm -hmm. And I thought, God damn, this really came out great. Well, we, we certainly didn't top it, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, there was some, there was some nice stuff. There was some nice stuff. Tomas and all that was... But that was, the, that was the killer. Yeah. So, basically, that, and, and what happened was, 
I'd go out to LA and I'd hang out at his, at his beach house. Mm -hmm. And we just, we hit it off. Mm -hmm. You know, it was just one of those things where, you know, in Miles, there's no gray area, you know? Right, right, right. I mean, he, he either loves you or hates you, mm -hmm. you know? Or ignores you, like you know, exactly. I've been there. Yeah. And I, whatever it was, we just hit it off. And the guy, I've never laughed as much in my life as when I was with All this right. guy. <laughs> well, he just would have, he was the funniest, quickest wit that I had ever met. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wish that I had taped, you know. In fact, actually, Fagan, Fagan and I were hanging out at the time. Uh, I was telling him about all these lies, and man, I wish I could record this shit. So Fagan sent me a thing that you clip on the, the phone. Yeah, yeah. And I was trying, but it kept falling off. You know? <laughs> and I, I never got, you know, I never got all that. Oh, yeah. It's great stuff. That's great. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, it was one of my great regrets when I finally came to order and had my first meeting with Mama Lenny about the roster and talked what's up and say, oh, well, you know, what's up with Miles? And Miles was sick, but... And so I connected with Shoe Cat, and we're talking about, well, he's got this hip-hop stuff he's been doing, which was Dubop. And when he's healthy, we're going to finish the record. What do you think? And we started working on planning it and all that, and then he passed. So I actually never... He was obviously one of my idols as a truck player and everything else, but I never got did, a chance to meet him. You did, know? So you never met him? Never got a chance to meet him. It was yeah. like... We were all, it was like two weeks away from when I was going to see him, and then he wow. got sick again. Yeah. But then I helped finish Dubop, the couple of tunes that weren't done yet. We went in and took tracks from the rubber band sessions, and there were two tunes that had really great trumpet souls. We took those, and then Easy Moby created tracks around those. One was called High Speed Chase, and one was called Blow, I think it was. And then um, A Fantasy. What, what was the name of the album then? The, the, the Dubop. It was Dubop. Yeah, oh, but I those two, I mean, I was able, it was like, I don't know what, I, I mean, I. It was hard to do. I mean, it's what Peter signed off on and all that. But I, I was able to take the trumpet performances and because I was a trumpet player and such, I knew everything. Yeah. I transcribed all these Miles solos. I knew Miles. So I was able to edit it to work with the track. So we edited the solo, those couple of solos. So all I did was take a few notes out here and there so it worked, where it was clear that he was, because he was fucking around with the band playing. And it was kind of clear when he was really playing and when he wasn't. So I just took the good stuff and then let Easy do the track. But it's as close as I got to work with Miles. You know, it's funny when you mentioned that. It made me think about uh, 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 one of the gigs I went to. Sometimes, like, these, these chicks would come and see him. And I mean, older chicks, too, you know, close to the stage. And there was one where I, I happened to notice he sort of went up and he, he sort of laughed and he went back to where the band was. Mm -hmm. You know, afterwards, man, we had dinner. And I, I said, what was going on between you and that chick? And he started laughing. He said, man, he said, that's funny. He said, as I was playing, she was going, honey, come over here when you're playing that shit. Come over here. <laughs> so he said, I went closer to her like I was playing to her. And he said, I just was playing a bunch of notes, man. And she said, honey, she said, if you're going to play like that, you can go back where you were standing. <laughs> 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 I mean, he would just come up with shit like, I mean, like, you know, the, the, the one that became sort of famous for me, me talking about it was... What he said to Mike, uh, the guitar player, Stern, so Mike Stern. Yeah, <laughs> I, it was one of the first rehearsals I went to, you know, and where, where he was playing all these, he was playing a hundred miles an hour, you yeah, know, yeah. Uh, and then he at the end of the tune he walked up and that's what he said, uh, man, I'm gonna send you to Notes Anonymous. <laughs> but but he would like just come up with this shit, you know. He was like, uh, he called me one night. And he said, uh, man, he said Gil called, hey, he wants me to go down to Sweet Basil. He said, man, you know. Come on with me. I said, all right, man. You know, I said, but look, have you been in one of these games? And I said, they're either off or on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One, one or the yeah, other. I remember that. 
And he said, oh, man, i got to go down. And I said, okay, yeah. So, so we took a car down. Joy was backed. And they went and they sat us in that, you know, that little alcove that's there yeah, exactly. on the left-hand mm -hmm. side? So they sat us down there. And then next thing you know, all of these people started. Chuck Manjone was there. And he came up. <laughs> and he was cool with them. He was, you know, he was, he was very, very nice with them. And I didn't know this at the time. Miles Evans comes up to say hello. And he's, you know, so Miles and I are like sitting there. And Miles, uh, Miles Evans comes up. He goes, hey, Miles, how you doing? He's standing. He's, he's a big cat. Yeah, yeah. And Miles was kind of cold to him, you know. I didn't, I had no idea, not a clue what was going on. And, you know, so he kept standing, like standing over him, you know, talking shit and whatever. And at one point, Miles said, man, get the fuck out of my face. <laughs> he said, well, man, I, you know, I said, I'm, I'm your godson. And I, he said, man, I don't give a fuck who you are, man. Get the fuck out of my face. <laughs> well, I found out later that he had apparently taken a chick that Miles was interested in. Oh, man. And that he never forgave him for that, you know. Oh, uh, okay, so right at that point, the Gil is going on with the band. <laughs> he started playing, and I'll tell you, man, we, we were four bars into the first tune, and Miles turns to me and he said, Let's get the fuck out of here. <laughs> and I said, man, I said, you can't, you know, you can't leave in the middle of a tune, man. And I said, I said, let's at least wait until the tune is over. He said, all right. So the tune is over. He goes, let's go. So he gets up and he goes, Gil, I'll talk to you later. And we split. So we get in the car and he goes, man, he said, that was too, because it was one of those off nights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, man, he said, that was tough, man. I said, I said, well, hey, man, I tell you, I said, I'm trying to figure out why these cats go through this every every Monday night. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I said, I guess they love Gil, you know, whatever. So Miles comes back to me with, well, maybe it's the bitches. <laughs> <laughs> I love them.